Welcome to MuggleCast, your weekly ride into the Wizarding World. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. We've got a great one today. We're going to be discussing some of the biggest plot holes in the Harry Potter series. We gathered our own plot holes and some of our listeners contributed their own. So it's going to be fun to discuss what we all found. We're going to criticize with love because we care. And we also have some really good emails today as well. But first, a PSA. We're about a month out from the presidential election in the United States, and we just wanted to let all our listeners know that many voter registration deadlines are approaching, so please make sure you're registered to vote in your state right now by visiting IWillVote.com. Then think about your voting plan and vote by November 3rd. This is obviously a very critical election, and you know which way we lean, most likely. (laughs) But regardless of your political position, everybody should vote. So make sure you register and you actually go vote. Agreed. Also, I would say make sure that you're not just stopping at the top of the ticket. Be sure to vote all the way down your ballot. Many of the issues that you may be concerned about are actually going to be handled at the state and local level. So making sure that you're voting, not just in the presidential, but for any local or national Senate uh, races that you may be having, um, that's also really, really important. Mm -hmm. And a good resource for that uh, is BallotReady.org, which will tell you about all the ballot information for which campaigns are supported, which... um, you know, hot button issues are supported by whom down the ballot. Yeah. And and just one other um, note I would make too is there is a shortage of poll workers out there for this year in particular, because normally um, those who are older tend to volunteer uh, as poll workers. So uh, encourage people to go check out powerthepolls.org where you can volunteer to be a poll worker this year. If you're interested, check it out. We'll include links to all of those in today's show notes. It's time for Muggle Mail. Yes. Following up on our discussion from last week about orphans, this Muggle Mail comes from Haley. Uh, They say, thank you for the research you did for the most recent episode. My parents adopted four daughters from Bulgaria who were between the ages of 10 and 16 at the time. Our family experiences the effects of RAD, reactive attachment disorder, times four. It hurts to think about what things my sisters didn't receive in the very earliest stages of their lives that they needed. I went and read the chapter in Half-Blood Prince with the memory of Dumbledore and Riddle's first meeting. The language used to describe his behavior and afterward when Harry and Dumbledore are discussing the memory really hit home for me. The severity in his tone when he makes demands for Dumbledore to tell the truth, how he quickly changes his tone to unrecognizable politeness to get information that he wants. The distrust that Dumbledore is actually who he says he is, because every adult in his life has failed him up to this point. Yeah, thank you for sharing your personal experience with reactive attachment disorder. I think that that really drives it home for anybody who maybe hadn't heard of it before. And and some really great examples there, too, of the interaction between Dumbledore and young Tom Riddle. All right, uh, next email comes from Mackenzie, who says... I thought I had concerns Voldemort's inability to love and understand love due to the circumstances of his conception. Personally, I think this is a major character motivation cop-out on the part of J.K. Rowling because it makes Voldemort's inability to love and show kindness to others something that was forced upon him and therefore out of his control. While reading the book as a kid, 
I always thought Voldemort had just chosen to reject love for one reason or another, maybe because of a bad experience or because he felt it was a weakness that would hold him back. Learning that he had no choice in the matter and was emotionally incapable of experiencing love because of his mother's choice to use a love potion on his father seems to take the responsibility of choosing whether to be a good person or a bad one away from Voldemort, thereby stunting his character growth and the consequences of his choices and making him a two-dimensional villain. I can't help wondering how a person who is physiologically incapable of feeling love turns out to be anything other than evil. Yeah, it's kind of like, this is kind of like what came first, the chicken or the egg, in terms of circumstances. Like, I think that it's an example that can be applied to real world situations in which people are, for whatever reason, um, like emotionally stunted from a young age, and it just kind of snowballs. So I don't know if there was never a possibility of Voldemort being different. Yeah. I just think that he reached a point where he was too far gone. I don't know that the love potion putting him on the wrong path is necessarily two-dimensional. What do you guys think? Yeah, I think maybe one of Mackenzie's concerns is that she feels we're supposed to sympathize with Voldemort if he had no choice. And I have never had sympathy for Voldemort if he had no choice. Yeah, I've I've long had this sort of problem because it seems to have been indicated that it was the love potion that you know if this is really about his choices then he and and he didn't have a choice then what up you know it's like Mackenzie said that's what you get you get an evil person yeah it's almost as if because Tom Riddle Sr.'s agency was removed and he had no choice in the matter his son now has no choice in whether or not he becomes good or evil. it's, And I don't know that that's the right connection to make, but it's certainly one that you can draw. I know there's a lot of other implications that we've talked about as it relates to the love potion and you know how far you want to take what Merope did to, to Tom Riddle Sr. and the effects that that then has as a result on Tom Riddle. It's very well reasoned. It's very well positioned by Mackenzie. Okay, well, we're going to go ahead and hop into our main discussion that we've been plugging for the last week or so. We're looking into the biggest plot holes in Harry Potter. Now, we just want to give a disclaimer up front here that some of these are just for fun and good-natured ribbing of something that we really love. Um, But other points that we bring up might make you say, hey, wait, that's actually a really glaring inconsistency that has major consequences on another plot point. Um, We're not trying to ruin anyone's enjoyment of Harry Potter, but as fans who hold this series near and dear to our hearts, we feel that it's important to critically analyze the text. And big thank you to all of our patrons who also um, shared some of their favorite plot holes. We included some of those in today's discussion. And we'll go book by book starting with Philosophers or Sorcerer's Stone. And I think our first point is about the missing 24 hours. Indeed. Yes. And if uh, this is for some reason your first time hearing about this, (laughs) I can (laughs) summarize it very easily. The Potters are murdered at nighttime and Harry is delivered to Privet Drive at nighttime the next day. 
In fact, that first day between those two events is the day that we see Vernon Dursley going to work and people in robes are celebrating and he's confused and angry about it. McGonagall's waiting on the wall for Dumbledore to show up. But what really happened with Hagrid, who has baby Harry? What sort of preparations uh, did Dumbledore reference? And really just what were the major players doing during that 24 hours? We don't know. Yeah. Where yeah. was Harry, most importantly, I think? Yeah, like, did, <laughs> right. did Hagrid just, Hagrid's got all sorts of bits and bobs in his pocket. Did he, like, just feed him, like, crumb cake or something? Mm -hmm. I speculated yeah. a couple weeks ago, was Dumbledore hanging out at a bar, crying <laughs> yeah. with Aberforth over what just happened? Hmm. We don't yeah, it is, it is interesting because, of course, Dumbledore makes the point in that first chapter of... Uh, the book where he's like, yeah, Harry has to come here because even though Voldemort's gone, this is the only place he's going to be safe. But what were you doing with him for that whole 24 hours? Like, how was he being kept safe? Did the motorbike take 24 hours to get from one end of England to another? Absolutely. It's unlikely. <laughs> yeah, it's unlikely. It needed to be refueled. I mean, he's had to stop a couple times. <laughs> had to get some petrol. I, I think there's a likelihood, though, that this whole plan needed to come together because I don't know that there was one in place should something happen to James and Lily. Dumbledore needed to figure out what exactly to do with Harry. Now, where he was is another question, but I, I think Dumbledore would needed to actually scoped out Privet Drive, scoped out the Dursleys, made sure that it was safe to do this. Yeah. No, I agree completely. It's just the closer you look into this, the more confusing it can get. For instance, the line that nothing like Albus Dumbledore had ever been seen before on Privet Drive when he apparates in the evening, right before he meets Professor McGonagall. But if he was setting up the protection of the love charm, uh, he should have been on the street all day, uh, figuring out like what spells to mutter and, and placing them on the this the property line, you know, that kind of a thing. And so, you know, depends on how literal you want to take certain things, I guess. But it's just super confusing. And it, I think definitely falls into this category of today's topic of like a plot hole. We, you know, we know stuff had to have occurred. We may have seen the stuff that occurred, but we didn't see it directly. Yeah. Well, and yeah. also somewhere at this in, in this 24 hour span, Hagrid got Sirius's motorbike, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah it's because Sirius shows up while Hagrid is sifting through the rubble looking for Harry, asks to take Harry. This is fleshed in in the uh, Three Broomsticks chapter. I think it's the one called the Marauder's Map in Prisoner of Azkaban, but, but yeah, like, and then Sirius goes and confronts Pettigrew either this day, during that day, or the next, the very next day. So there's, it's just a, a, a time that is ripe with so much plot, um, but it, we actually don't see any bit of it. And if you're somebody who's more of a movie watcher, I think you you have the general sense that the Potters are killed, and then that very night, Hagrid takes Harry and, and flies him to Privet Drive. And it's it's very easy to not even think that there is a lost day mm -hmm. in between everything that's going on. I think book readers are one, are the ones who pick up on it um, based upon the events that occur. Right. And Ali says... Uh, in relation to the same chapter, during a recent reread of Philosopher's Stone, we noticed a fun oddity in McGonagall and Dumbledore's first exchange at Privet Drive. Dumbledore says, fancy seeing you here. 
as if he is surprised by her presence, and McGonagall asks him how he knew it was her. This makes no sense. It's November 1st, the middle of term, and McGonagall is a teacher, not to mention the head of house for Gryffindor. Are you really telling me she would just randomly disappear for an entire day without having cleared it with the headmaster? Also, hasn't Dumbledore seen her in her animagus form before yeah to me this is the most glaring thing that she's like how did you know it was me of course he knew it was me. <laughs> <laughs> bitch i know what you look like in your animagus form i've seen it for decades i love the line that he's like i've never seen a cat sit so sternly though that's one of the best lines in here yeah Potter. it really is <laughs> yeah. in terms of mcgonagall getting time off don't you think there was like this national day of mourning or something like that like maybe hogwarts was closed that day after what had just happened. Yeah, I think probably. And I mean, we also see um, throughout Vernon Dursley's day, there are weird people in cloaks out walking around all over the place. Yeah. So I think I think it's safe to say people took a day off. Yeah. I think what gets me the most about this, and it's definitely like more of a fun, like nitpicky thing that doesn't really have any major implications, is the idea that Dumbledore wouldn't have seen McGonagall as a cat before now. <laughs> He definitely. Oh, I like that. He would definitely more. know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess it's for it's for the readers who are being introduced yeah. to these characters for the first time. From that perspective, it makes sense. But yeah. yeah, I see. Fancy seeing you here is just more of a casual statement, like yeah. a funny, witty remark that Dumbledore is accustomed to making because he's probably not surprised to see her there. Yeah, it's sarcasm. Like they knew they were both going to be there. So, oh, fancy seeing you here. Uh. Mm-hmm. Well, looking forward to Chamber of Secrets, this this is more for fun. I'm just going to preface this by saying this. But how big are the pipes at Hogwarts that a giant <laughs> snake is able to navigate around in them? <laughs> and how? Not to mention that the pipes are all in the walls. So there's these gaping chasms in between walls like there's a lot of space that's wasted by having these giant well and presumably if you know hogwarts was built before indoor plumbing and people just used to disappear that stuff Mm -hmm. would they go in and retrofit it with these giant pipes because the chamber was built you know above pipes above the girls restroom a thousand years ago when slytherin was still at hogwarts yeah i think it could be reasonably argued that the entrance to the chamber later became the girls' bathroom. Yeah. Maybe it had a tap. Yeah, a different entrance at another point. There should have been magic on those pipes like they expand when they need to, sort of like how the night bus can shrink when it needs to. That way the pipes could have been smaller. Yeah, I, I could accept that as a possible explanation here. Again, this is more of like a fun thing. I don't think that... No, Laura, we need to spend an hour on this. (laughs) I don't think that it's something that has like serious implications on the outcome of the plot. But Eric, I know you had a question about the basilisk actually being able to attack. Yeah, I kind of. So I actually remember reading and liking the whole explanation for why everyone in year two is petrified instead of being murdered. Um, I like the idea that what like Justin Finch Fletchley saw it through Nick, Nick couldn't die again. And that you know, Hermione of course is the mirror that she carries around. So it's, I found it all to be like really exciting and not at all contrived, but looking back, how bad of a killer is the basilisk or, or how, you know, when, 
how is it that all of those students managed to escape death? Like logistically, like, is it just a spate of good luck for us or, and, and, and how were, how were mudbloods, uh, sorry, excuse me, <laughs> muggleborns targeted, um, to begin with? Was it something that Ginny, you know, who's being controlled and is therefore controlling the basilisk using parcel tongue? Is she aware of her fellow students, uh, blood status? And then, you know, is kind of stalking these other students and then finding when they'll be alone and then sending the basilisk after them. But, you know, it opens up a whole host of questions regarding how exactly were these students targeted and how did they all manage to escape death? I, I wouldn't be surprised if Tom Riddle trained the basilisk and or the basilisk has some sort of magical sensor or ability to track mudbloods. Mm-hmm. I, I, I would, you know, I, I just think that maybe it's it's second nature, and you know, the basilisk too is is very much a Medusa type character, right? You can't mm-hmm. stare directly at it. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, borrowing that mythology um, piece from from Greek mythology, um, I just think that it it has certain qualities maybe that we don't know about. Yeah, yeah. I feel able to accept that. Let's look towards Prisoner of Azkaban. This is when we start to get into quite a deal more um, potential plot holes that people are noticing. So what about James Potter Mm. and not becoming his own secret keeper? Who had this point? (laughs) I did. This is a big one. You can't become your own secret keeper. That's like wishing for more wishes. You can't do that. Mm. No, hold on a second. Okay, okay. So this this is one that is in a lot of uh, articles and a, a lot of people made this point. And Jeffrey wrote in to say, the biggest plot hole for me is the Fidelius charm issue. If Bill can be the secret keeper for his own house, oh. why couldn't James or Lily have been their own secret keeper? I know some people think Bill told Ron the secret after Ron went to stay there because that's when the charm could have put been put on it. But doesn't the secret keeper themselves have to pass the information on? Wouldn't Bill have had to die for Ron to become a secret keeper and therefore be able to give the location to Harry and the others? Uh, one other thing, uh, when Lily and James were in hiding for a year, did it take them that long to think of using the Fidelius charm or did it take them that long to think of hiding in their own invisible house? <laughs> okay. Isn't there something beautiful about asking somebody else to be your secret keeper? Yeah. Somebody outside of the relationship. I think there's something poetic about that, you know, because you trust your friends who you grew up with. I mean, these are your marauders. These are your, your, your closest friends. There shouldn't be any problem with making one of them the secret keeper. Of course, unless they betray you, but you don't think of that. Well, I'm thinking back to Grimald Place when they first arrive and Harry, like Moody, Tonks, all of them know about the Order's HQ. They know where it is, but they can't be the ones to divulge it. And so Harry gets the letter that we later find out was written by Dumbledore. So it's still Dumbledore, who's the secret keeper of the the whole thing that has to tell Harry. So yeah, this whole, I now I'm genuinely confused because the bill ron thing with shokai yeah i i'm this is a good plot hole <laughs> i also i find myself curious about you know lily and james in hiding for a year kind of like the 24 hour period like what was going on <laughs> during that time <laughs> well and, and and prior to that how did they thrice defy voldemort those must have been some epic battles <laughs> you know i always got the impression that 
the thrice-defied thing didn't necessarily mean they battled him. Right. I think it's possible that defied could mean a number of things, like refusing to join the Death Eaters, for example. Mm-hmm. All right. You know? Um, so it, it could be multiple things, because we have to remember that Frank and Alice Long- Longbottom also defied Voldemort three times. Well, you know what they say, defy me once, shame on you. <laughs> <laughs> but it the- could just be they, they turned the, the right corner at, at the right time and Voldemort was coming down the street like that could have easily been a... Defiant. Yeah, Defiant Voldemort moment. raised his hand to say hello, and they were like, no. <laughs> Boy, bye. Yep. Defied. I, I think um, the bigger plot hole, honestly, I, I mean, we could debate whether or not James Potter should have been his own secret keeper, but the willingness to entrust the information with their weakest link in Peter Pettigrew, I, I, that always, to me, was just such a poor decision. So yeah. Maybe it's not a plot hole necessarily, but I think looking back on it, you say, why would James and or Lily make that decision? Yeah. I think we also have to remember that James and Lily were really young when they died. They were like 21. Mm -hmm. So they were pretty recent Hogwarts graduates. And I think the reasoning for choosing Peter was that he was the least obvious choice. So they, they thought if Voldemort was going to go after anybody... It wouldn't be Peter, <laughs> except it was. D- yeah, Dumbledore should have insisted on being the secret keeper, or somebody should have told Dumbledore that it was no longer Sirius Black, because that obviously complicates everything that happens with Sirius later. But Dumbledore even says in the books that he was aware at that point or had a huge suspicion that somebody close to the Potters was giving information to Voldemort. And so Dumbledore should have just made it him- himself. And I don't think they have good reasons for not making it Dumbledore. Like Dumbledore's the one guy you want as your secret keeper yeah. always. Old because, age. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's not going down without a fight and nobody's better in battle. I also mm-hmm. really, um, I enjoyed hearing about, you know, the way the Fidelius charm worked. And it, I forget who said it. And I th- think it was also in Prisoner of Azkaban, but where they were like, yeah, as long as, the secret was kept. Voldemort could have had his nose pressed up against their living room window. And he yeah. wouldn't have been able to see anything. And I just really like that visual. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but sort of on the point of Voldemort, I have in here, why didn't anyone go back in time to stop Voldemort with a time turner? <laughs> I understand that this was addressed on Potter No More. Um, that there is there are some limitations in terms of how far back you can go with a time turner. There was. Unf- unfortunately, <laughs> that is no longer the case if Cursed Child is to be considered canon, because of course we know what happened there was sort of like the reverse of somebody going back to stop Voldemort. What you just said weren't even Rowling's excuses. She said uh, she had Dumbledore emphasize to Hermione how dangerous time turners are. All the time turners were smashed. Hermione had to give hers back. At no point are your arguments brought up. I mean, time turners are the probably the biggest plot hole in the Harry Potter series. That's what I'm going to... You can just <laughs> fix everything with them, well, according to the cursed can't, child. Though, because it, as far as Prisoner of Azkaban, the book works, the, the universe works in a closed loop. So you can't actually change anything that you've observed because you would be prevented by doing so. You will have always done that. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Well, that I think is what makes Time Turners a real issue, though, is because... 
they don't always function that way. Like, yes, in the core books, that's how they function. But then, you know, we see in The Cursed Child, it's no longer a closed loop. Mm -hmm. This is why The Cursed Child is not canon. (laughs) Your well, universe can either well your universe it either works one way or the other way. Either there's divergent timelines every time you you go back and change time, uh, or everything you everything that happened happened. Same. I and I think I told y'all about like my alternate version of the cursed child and what would have made it good. But the TLDR oh. is that yes, all the time journeys get destroyed in the Potter books, and. Delphi is like immensely powerful and she's trying to recreate a time turner and she manages to do it, but it's a really jank one. And that's why it opens up the possibility of actually changing time. That's the only way this makes sense. I like that a lot. (laughs) She's like, well, I made it, but it's, it's got some, some quirks. (laughs) It it also just becomes too easy of a plot device to use a time turner anytime something Right. doesn't go the way you want it to. And and I think we have a tendency to think about time turners as working on the side of good, but they can just as easily be manipulated right. by the other side and by Voldemort. Good point. good point. And I just personally, I think it would be too easy for time turners to keep showing up throughout the Potter series. I think they served their purpose in Prisoner of Azkaban and J.K. Rowling didn't want to go any further until she let Cursed Child be written because that that's just a whole nother massive yeah. time. Yeah. I think time turners were so critical to the Cursed Child story that by the time this was all pitched to her, she was like, well, either I go with the time turner idea or I tell them to throw this all out and then we have no play at all. Womp womp. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's look at what's probably one of the most, the biggest fan favorite plot holes Um, And this comes from Faith, although many other folks suggested this one. Why wasn't Peter Pettigrew ever noticed on the Marauders map by Fred and George? (laughs) I have one line of defense. There are a lot of people at Hogwarts. And I mean, are you watching that entire map at all times? No, but I feel like you might at some point notice peter pettigrew is in bed with your brother (laughs) like and you're like who the heck is that well fred and george might be like oh okay he's he's into guys that's cool respect the convenient (laughs) explanation is that the only times in the first three years of of harry and ron being at hogwarts that they looked at the map it was when they were about to go cause mischief somewhere else. So the only the parts of the map they would be looking at wouldn't be wherever Ron was. It would be wherever the, the twins were. It's an interesting um, idea. Yeah, but don't they make a reference to the fact that Dumbledore is always pacing in his study? So it's not as if they don't pay attention. Now, yes, they may pay attention to Dumbledore because if they're about to run off and do something inappropriate, yeah. they don't want to get caught. Right. But I would like to think Fred and George spend a fair bit of time snooping on on people and and seeing what they're up to and i would especially think they would do that maybe less so for ron but definitely for percy and (laughs) so that that's why it's just a shock to me that peter pettigrew as one of the original authors of the marauders map would not show up uh, and would not get recognized by fred and george yeah also this is a very like big brother device that (laughs) two teenagers have in their grasp i just want to throw that out there too it's it's a little creepy 
Well, and and I've always wondered, it's not quite a plot hole, but it is adjacent of how magic works to identify that person, um, you know, by their essence or whatever, and writes it on the map. How do they, does the map know what name they call themselves? Like what what's going on there? Exactly. Right. If it had said scabbers, then I don't think anybody would have turned yeah. their head and, and said, oh, you know, okay, Scabbers is in bed with Percy or, or Ron. <laughs> Not as big of a deal. Mm-hmm. If Peter Although it is, would be funny. Yeah. It would be funny if, 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 because non humans don't show up, if Scabbers still showed up but was called Scabbers, that would be interesting. Yeah. But Mrs. Norris shows up, doesn't she? Oh, I think you're right. Yeah. But that's actually who she is. True. As far as we know, yeah. there hasn't been there hasn't been the Nagini treatment yet. So well, the owl should show up. Then that's a plot hole because everybody's owl should be oh, yeah. marked on the broader. Well, this is no, my point. Is... There's so many yeah. characters that could be appearing yeah. on this map at any given time at Hogwarts. So I what would have been really interesting is if you had Percy, Penelope, and Peter all in bed together, <laughs> and Fred wow. saw that. Oh my god. Uh, yeah, and see, the problem here is that we can start going down the slippery slope argument of like, well, why wasn't Errol on the map, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I think it's just especially for a primary character like this who was around so frequently, I think it's reasonable to be like, okay, why? We know this is how the map works. Mm-hmm. We know that it would show his name. Why didn't it? So, um, uh, yeah, I think the best excuse is that Fred and George didn't notice. But maybe not the best excuse. Um, We got another one from Andy. Andy said, why didn't Lupin warn Harry to look out for a black dog? He knew very well that Sirius was on the loose and could easily disguise himself as Padfoot. And it wasn't until the end of the book that Lupin learned of Sirius's innocence. So shouldn't he have taken Harry aside during one of his Patronus charm lessons and given him a heads up? Love it. Yeah, that's That's a a great one. one. Yeah, it is. The only thing I can think here is that Lupin might be scared of being outed in terms of like, well, how do you know that Sirius has this Animagus form, especially since Sirius is an illegal Animagus? And then it kind of opens the door to, you know, potentially discovering Lupin's identity as a werewolf. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the only thing I I can think. This, I think this is the, the work that's being done in the book to justify it is that nobody knows about the Marauders being Animagi, not even Dumbledore. Mm-hmm. And because this was something that was kept from Dumbledore, Remus in all of his um, you know, God-fearing wisdom, he, 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 he doesn't want it to reflect badly on himself. So he doesn't tell Harry that, that Sirius is an Animagus, but he doesn't tell Dumbledore either. He, he completely clams up and, and it, I think it causes undue risk to Harry. Um, but he's doing it because it was a secret that's been kept for so long and he worries that if it came out that he would be either sacked or Dumbledore would be, I don't know, disappointed in him. Right. And and that also goes to, I always find it really strange that for as all knowing as Dumbledore is that he wasn't aware of the fact that he had three animagi running around Hogwarts, you know, back in the, uh, in the eighties, it just. It seems so strange to me, um, or even before that. The only thing that I can think of here is, I don't know, maybe it just didn't occur to Lupin that Harry might have seen Sirius in his dog form. Mm-hmm. Maybe if Harry had been like, yeah, I've been seeing this shaggy black dog like everywhere. 
Lupin would be like, oh, crap, maybe. Um, Feriel says, when Sirius was blamed for Pettigrew's death and the related massacre, why didn't the Ministry or Dumbledore use Priori Incantatum on Sirius's wand to see if he actually cast the spell to kill Pettigrew? Or why didn't anyone use a pensive in his memories to see that he had made Peter secret keeper? Yeah, this one gets brought up a lot. Yeah. This is a legitimate plot hole because... The whole Sirius being framed for the murder and going down for it exists prior to the introduction of the pensive and priori incantatum and veridiserum even. All of these things that would be used to promote, you know, and prove Sirius's innocence weren't written about at the time that in the book that this occurred. So looking back, you're like, oh, that's a huge, why didn't they just use that? Or why didn't they just use that? And yeah, it is a plot hole. Like, why does Sirius go down for it? Um, I think one of the biggest overarching problems with a series like Harry Potter, where magic can really resolve everything, is that there's a type of magic to answer any question. Like you're saying, Eric, Veritaserum. Why do we have court trials? We'll talk about this in a little bit. But why do we have court trials when Veritaserum can just be used? Or in this case... Uh, why can't you just see which spell Sirius cast? Like there are answers for all of these things. There are solutions to get to the bottom of things. Mm-hmm. Right. I think here something that could be used to explain this is ministry incompetence. Like we've seen the Ministry of Magic loves to find a scapegoat and like tie a nice neat little bow on something and be like, okay, this isn't a problem anymore. We've handled it. Um, rather than sort of letting a cloud of uncertainty hang over them and the rest of the wizarding world. So Sirius, I think, was a pretty, he was a convenient scapegoat for them. Yeah. He also, it just really seems like he didn't advocate for himself. Like yeah. the only the only way that Sirius ends up in Azkaban for 13 years is if he doesn't reveal that he was not, in fact, the secret keeper and he should just have a heart to heart with Dumbledore would have cleared everything up. Like, hey, mm-hmm. we made it Peter the last minute. We're also all in a Magi. So look for a rat somewhere in Albania. You know, like, <laughs> all, all that stuff. Like it just those Albanian it, rats. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, I think for Sirius, though, in this moment in particular, he's just lost everything. He's lost mm. you know, James and Lily. You know, Harry is, is now going to be cared for by somebody else. And he's young too, right? We talked about earlier how young James and Lily are in this moment. Like he probably feels a true sense of responsibility for what has happened because of the fact that Pettigrew was was made the secret keeper. And maybe he doesn't know how best to react in this situation. But I, I just think that the law should have been on his side and there should have been something that allowed for him to be given a fair trial. Mm. Uh, and, and it's just, it's not done. Like these recommendations that are given here by, by Ferial, you know, about whether it's using a pensive or a priori incantatum or Veretta serum, there were op- options out there that were, we've seen used in trials that were never even used here. And I just think that wasn't fair for Sirius. So what you're saying is Sirius was feeling like he had nothing left to live for. So he, it it was said he like, he, he essentially went mad for that 
brief period of time. Like the the laughter and just his behavior suggested somebody who was just completely deranged and and we know that he bides his time in Azkaban, but why? He didn't have to. You know, he took the fall for something that he he wasn't responsible for and it, it, it's hard to understand why. Agreed. Well, looking forward to Goblet of Fire. Eric, you want to kick us off? Yeah. So uh, speaking of time turners, uh, how do Fred and George correctly predict the outcome of the Quidditch World Cup with Ireland winning, but Crumb catching the snitch? How in a million years, and I'm, I'm sure there's like a statistical analysis. Somebody figured out the odds of this occurring. But the fact that the Weasleys bet quite a sizable amount of money on it and Ludo Bagman takes that bet, it's just, it, 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 they need to be time traveling, right? Like this is never quite explained. The bigger the bigger deal is that no more time Bagman's traveling screwed them. But no, I'm saying like there's no way. Why is this even in the book? I th- if it's not going to be explained, I think it's done to set up Bagman as a character and that whole mm. plot that follows in terms of Fred and George not getting what they're owed. Harry giving the the two twins his winnings from mm-hmm. the Triwizard Tournament. It's a plot device. I don't think that there's anything here that it is like going on beneath the surface. It's also just Fred and George. I mean, of course, something like this would happen where they would happen to predict the outcome of the Quidditch World Cup. Yeah, it's kind of like a specific outcome. Can't, it's a specific give outcome. Give them a win for once. This is a poor yeah. family. They're finally coming into some money. Yeah. I mean, also, you can make the argument that Fred and George are skilled Quidditch players. So they might have studied oh yeah these various teams strategies yeah and sort of Ooh. mapped out what the potential outcomes were I I think this one can have it's... some kind of plausible explanation yeah and it doesn't right. it doesn't feel like something that has like super big implications on the ability of the story to play out the way it does Let's just say it's something that runs in the Weasley family right like Ron is this <laughs> unknown seer at times with everything that he jokes about <laughs> comes true so fred and george are good at at picking uh quidditch winners and yeah and scores yeah okay i buy it yeah i mean at, you know this is a profession by the way sports betting like oh, getting to yeah. laura's point maybe they have spent a lot of time studying the odds and who will uh, has the highest chances of winning to make that money? Yeah, it just it strikes me as the only way you'd bet all that much money on uh, on any one sports outcome is if you already know what it's going to be. Right, if you're that really confident about what's going to happen. Well, that okay. So if you want to take it a step further, you ask the question: Did Crumb throw the Quidditch World Cup uh, because whoa. he caught the snitch down? too many points knowing that if he caught it his team would still not win so maybe fred and george were getting tips from the bulgarian quidditch team and they were you know they're all working in concert with each other uh maybe there are microphones in the helmets yep you never know (laughs) yeah but this next one is is a little bit more plausible of a plot hole and (laughs) (laughs) uh it's it's one that i often think about and it's how did the triwizard cup function as a reverse port key to bring Harry back to Hogwarts at the end of Goblet of Fire. We've up until this point we saw a port key at the very beginning of Goblet of Fire taking them to the Quidditch World Cup 
And there's very specific parameters around how long that boot functioned as a port key. So my question is just, does Moody leave it or fake Moody leave it open-ended here? Like it takes Cedric and Harry to the graveyard, but then how how is it magic so that it takes Harry back to Hogwarts? Harry didn't do any magic to to make it work that way. He wouldn't even know right. how. Right. And and it doesn't make any sense that the Death Eaters would want to go back to Hogwarts or or even provide that escape for Harry. The only explanation I can think of is if a Death Eater like is on Harry's side. Like if Narcissa mm. Malfoy or somebody was like, he's going to need to get out of this. I'm going to go quickly make this a port key back to Hogwarts. Yeah, I, I guess it just opens up the possibility that there are multiple parameters for port keys. Like you can have... Yeah. Like, I guess I think of it like public transit, maybe a bit like because we remember in Goblet of Fire at the beginning, it was Harry, Hermione, the Weasleys and the Diggories, and they all had to meet at like a specific point. So maybe, maybe the ministry like set up various port keys throughout the land (laughs) so that (laughs) people could meet at specific times to get to the World Cup and kind of like do a little bit of traffic control. Yeah. In terms of like when people were arriving and how much like port right. keys were being used at one point. So I guess it's possible that you can have that and then you can have sort of like the private charter port key <laughs> as an option. <laughs> yeah. You would think there are there are multiple types of port keys. Yeah. What gets me about this though, and somebody help me, I can't recall if this is a movieism, but Harry and Cedric are transported from the heart of the maze, but when they come back, the port key leaves them outside the maze. <laughs> and it just right. seems like that doesn't, that part really doesn't gel for me. That might be a movie. How can you port key in and out of Hogwarts if you can't operate in and out of Hogwarts? That's a big one, too. Mm-hmm. Like, there should be limits on uh, rapid approach of Hogwarts by an outside body without Dumbledore's Mm -hmm. consent. Like he never should have been able to be sent away from Hogwarts if they're on the Quidditch pitch. Yeah. Right. The only thing I I can think there is that the professors all had a part in putting together the tasks. Yeah. Um, So because they didn't know that imposter Moody was an imposter, he was able to help set up the maze task. And Barty Crouch Jr. is obviously very skilled so he's been operating under Dumbledore's nose all year. Why not? Right. Right. The the only other thing that came to mind for me is is maybe you could argue that those that showed up during Priori and Cantatum were able to magic the port key somehow so that it would take Harry and Cedric back to Hogwarts. Because doesn't Amos say to him, you know, take my son back? Or take um, his body back. I, but again, I, I I think the the most plausible answer here to Andrew's point is, and Laura, you said this too, like there are multiple types of port keys. Yeah. And this one just happened to be good enough to last until Harry and Voldemort battled and he was able to take it back to Hogwarts. Another point on uh, Moody, Doug says, in Goblet of Fire, the fake Mad-Eye Moody is already in place. 
So why is there the need for the elaborate scheme of having Harry compete in the Triwizard Tournament? (laughs) At the appropriate time, the faux Mad-Eye could just create a port key out of anything and ask Harry to pick it up and bring it to him. He is a trusted professor. He could get the unsuspecting Harry to do just about anything. Could they have needed more time? We need more time to excavate the bones and cut off Peter's hand. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. I, it we're getting too- it shipped uh, internationally. <laughs> it's going to take a uh, six to eight weeks. <laughs> I honestly think this is because they wanted Voldemort to be able to come back without detection. And they needed Harry in order to do that. And the Triwizard Tournament is a great cover because students die in the Triwizard Tournament all the time. Oh, right. oh yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's my thought there. Um, kind of like a, a smaller thing. Um, I know the tasks seemed really exciting because we're seeing them from Harry's point of view. Um, But the second and third tasks, those audiences are just sitting there for a couple hours staring at a lake in a maze. (laughs) Like there's nothing happening. Yeah, there's no cameras. There's no television screens. I guess they What are they getting out of this? They have commentators, but can the commentators see anything? So no. Yeah, that's um, That's a really good point. Mm hmm. I guess it's just the thrill, the anticipation of who's going to come out first, you know, who's going to survive, who's going to win that you'd have to. uh, Oh, sorry. That's enough for people. Yeah. You'd have to go to the Slytherin uh, common room to watch the second task. Right. (laughs) That's right. Because it opens onto the lake. It does. Yeah. But I I like that. That, That's pretty funny. Like, do they give them like those virtual reality uh, goggles so Mm -hmm. that they can watch what's going on? But we know they didn't. Harry. And this is just more of us being critical of Dumbledore. Um, But like, given everything that's happened with the defense against the dark arts position, he knows it's cursed. Um, How does somebody get by on polyjuice potion all year without Dumbledore having any idea? Yeah, this is, you know, an ongoing loophole throughout the series the author relied on Polyjuice Potion, I think, a little too much across the series, and she's still relying on it a lot. Maybe not yeah. necessarily Polyjuice Potion, but, you know, the ability to pretend to be somebody else. It gets tired after a while. Yeah. And despite how frequently people pose as other people, there's never any assumption that the person isn't who they say they are. Yeah, it seems like you should have a secret handshake. With everyone, like he right. should, like Alistair should have rolled up and Dumbledore should have been like, hey, what's up, man? And like gone in for the handshake. <laughs> and then that would have been the end. Yeah. Would have been like, um. I, I will say, if there was any character to Polyjuice, it would have been Moody because he just has so many quirks about him. Mm-hmm. Like, they're, they're, he's just the right combination from a character standpoint to try and impersonate. Because if you see something off or odd about him, your immediate assumption is not to assume that something's wrong. It's just like, oh, that's Moody. He's a crazy ex or, you know, who's fought one too many battles and probably has gotten one too many curses or or hexes thrown his way. (laughs) And that's just how he goes about things. But I do agree with you. uh, The fact that it was used as a plot device way too much and the Goblet of Fire movie. The book, it's not as apparent, but the Goblet of Fire movie is just riddled throughout with 
examples of how he's not who he appears to be. It even from like the first crack of lightning in in, <laughs> in the great hall when he shows up and then he drinks from the hip flask. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well also the weird tongue thing that <laughs> yes. David Tennant did as Barty Crouch Jr. and then they started yeah, having mad idea. I was like, what is this tick? Yeah. Yeah. What is this? Always be suspicious of people who are drinking regularly. That's I think the lesson here. Oh. <laughs> well, remember What Barty are you Crouch... saying about me? <laughs> <laughs> Barty Crouch Jr. kept Moody alive so that he could continually ask him new questions as new scenarios arose. It allowed Barty Crouch Jr. to really inhabit and, and account for all variables. So that was another smart thing that that enabled Barty to do that all year. And then the other thing is that uh, as you were saying, Moody as a person is the perfect person to impersonate because of his horror status. No, like Dumbledore might have felt comfortable around him. Like, like you're more likely to ward off any, you know, Death Eater activity or any negative dark magic because you have the skills to do so. So Dumbledore could probably pretty easily let his guard down around uh, who he thought was Alistair. Yeah, I will say from the reader's perspective too. This does work a lot better than it did in the movie because he's a brand new character. So we don't really know what to expect from him. We have no way of knowing he's an imposter because we've never seen the real one at this point. Um, I agree, though. The movie makes it way too obvious. I remember being blown away. Like when this book came out and Mm. that reveal happened, I was like, oh, my God. I mean, I was, you know, 11, but... Still, I remember that being a big moment. Yeah. We should have figured we were going to get a bad professor after we got Lupin in Prisoner of Azkaban. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So we have a few more plot holes to discuss. But first, Me Undies is back to sponsor this week's episode of MuggleCast. Makers of the most comfortable and surprising underwear and loungewear. You know how Dobby gets a piece of clothing and is so happy. It seems like he'll never take it off. That'll be you with me undies. They're so darn comfortable. You'll never want to take them off. And luckily, we do have to wear underwear all the time. So it works out perfectly. Me Undies believes that comfort is about more than what's touching your skin. It's about feeling comfortable in your skin. Keyword, your, not someone else's. This isn't a Michael Myers movie, but it is almost Halloween, which means you can now match your undies to the spookiest season of all time. Me Undies just launched three new Halloween prints. So whether you're into cats, vampires, or skeletons during the Halloween season, they've got something right up your haunted alley. And that's one of my most favorite parts of Me Undies. All the ridiculously fun prints that you can get for you or you and your partner with their fun match me feature. Laura and I have been longtime fans of Me Undies. What's your favorite part about them, Laura? Um, of course, all the really cute prints, but they are genuinely just the most comfortable. Um, like not even just like personal garments, but like they have really comfortable um like loungewear and like bralettes and things like that and it really just feels like it's woven from a cloud yeah legitimately like i'm i'm definitely a convert yeah (laughs) it's my number one preference their undies grow on trees no seriously they're made from irresistibly soft natural fibers sourced from beechwood trees and you know what natural fibers mean 
that their micromodal is not only super soft, but breathable, light, and impossibly cozy. Cloud-like comfort. That's some serious comfort. Me Undies has a great offer for our listeners. For any first-time purchasers, you get 15% off and free shipping. Me Undies also has their problem-free philosophy. If you're not satisfied with any product for any reason, they'll refund or exchange it. No caveats, no questions. To get your 15% off your first order and free shipping, go to MeUndies.com slash MuggleCast. That's MeUndies.com slash MuggleCast today. All right, back into the plot holes discussion. Yeah, so this, this is another little fun one, but I was curious, how do the escapees from Azkaban get their wands back? I'm thinking about Sirius. I'm thinking about Bellatrix and all of the Death Eaters that break out in Order of the Phoenix. What gives? Yeah, it's a it's a great, great, great question. Either there is a somebody at Azkaban that has like a box of their stuff, like <laughs> the stuff that they were admitted with, uh, that's going to give them their wand back, or that gets stored. I don't know in an administrative office at Azkaban, or maybe people like Death Eaters, especially knowing that they're going in. Um, do they have time to hide their wand like in the wild somewhere where no one's going to find it mm. so that when they break out, they just go back and and get yeah. it? Or is it are they storing it with family? I think like, on really, their way like, out, they would try to grab them. They must have yeah. an idea of where they're being stored if they are stored at as command. So if you can break out of your cell, you can also probably break into wherever your wand is and take that on your way yeah. out. I, but there's sort of a plot hole now because Hagrid when he was expelled from Hogwarts, got his wand snapped. Why wouldn't they do the same thing for Death Eaters that have life sentences yeah. in Azkaban? True. Why Why wouldn't you snap? There shouldn't be a wand that you can go and retrieve. Or right. maybe they go yeah. and steal somebody else's wand. Yeah, I, I think that. that is probably pretty <laughs> likely. You know how I we mean, have paper like, shredders? I'm not trying, to be, not trying to be grim or anything, but wands can still work after their owners have died so yeah i mean they could go take a dead person's wand presumably yeah or maybe there's just like black wand market where you can just go and buy (laughs) wands no questions asked like hey you're like 50 why do you need a new wand no reason i didn't just break out of jail yeah you just show up at olivander's (laughs) oh my god polyjuice potioned as a new hogwarts student oh it would be more more challenging, I think, for somebody like Sirius initially than it would be for Bellatrix and the Death Eaters, because for Bellatrix, this is a mass breakout, right? This is Death Eaters are taking over and they probably could easily get what they need if, in fact, like you said, Eric, their wands are just stored somewhere within the prison. They already have the Dementors on their side. So for them, maybe it's a little bit easier, but for Sirius, I feel like you know, he has to do his due diligence just to get out of Azkaban and well, not be okay, detected. But like, well, this reminded me of Voldemort. How does Voldemort have his same Phoenix tail feather wand? It doesn't make any sense. The last time he used it was to destroy Harry and his wand would have been exploded at the same time he was, um, you know, in the rubble of the house at Godric's hollow should be the very remnants of Voldemort's wand. All of a sudden, you know, he's resurrected and he still has the same exact wand. Otherwise, it wouldn't do the Priory and Cantatum with Harry's wand in the graveyard. So how does that happen? Great question. A lot of wand holes. <laughs> wand holes. A lot of, 
<laughs> a lot of wand holes. Um, okay, just a quick one for Half-Blood Prince. Why doesn't Voldemort make all his Death Eaters make an unbreakable vow? Like, <sighs> like, come on. Like, you want to make sure these people don't betray you. Well, right. there you go. Maybe Voldemort would rather trust them on their word instead of an unbreakable vow. Because nah. wouldn't that be... No, because think about it. Wouldn't that be a better <laughs> no. allegiance to him than this unbreakable he vow? He doesn't trust anyone. <laughs> yeah. And he's had Death Eaters betray him. I, it just mm-hmm. seems like he, he could have come to a point where he'd be like, hey. Although it could speak to his arrogance, maybe. You yeah. know, like, Narcissa Malfoy is definitely, you know, she's at this point in the story on the bad side of history, but she's not stupid and she's not arrogant enough to think that her son could actually take out Dumbledore. So she makes Snape swear to protect Draco, but I could see Voldemort not being able to conceive of the idea that anybody would betray him. So maybe that explains it. There is a bit of the loyalty factor, though, already with uh, the dark mark being branded on their skin. I mean, it's very reminiscent of of Nazi Germany, but he has a direct line of communication to them whenever he wants it. All he has to do is is tap, tap, yeah, essentially. Double click on the dark mark (laughs) and, and, and the Death Eaters respond. Now, not all of them respond as quickly as he would like them to. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that it makes the Unbreakable Bow and Half-Blood Prince that much more shocking to the reader when Snape makes it. Uh, if if Death Eaters had already done it for Voldemort, I just feel like it wouldn't have been as special. But yeah, it that is a good point. I mean, this could have very easily turned into like a Polyjuice Potion or a Time Turner type mm-hmm. plot device. And it's nice that it didn't. Yeah. Yeah, the terms of everyone's uh, unbreakable vow, it makes it really, really complicated to like act or do a thing. Actually, wasn't there an unbreakable vow in under use of comma? Wasn't there something with yes? Yeah, he, he swore. He swore he, it to his father. Like this. That's yep. the point. Of, yeah. It can be overused. Like to even right. use it twice was to overuse Look, it. We don't need to get into crimes of Grindelwald plot holes because that <laughs> right now is a huge. Oh no, yeah, yeah. well over an hour. Next week's episode. I, I, we crimes could of do Grindelwald that some, plot. at some point. That might no, not. But but right. I'm saying like the 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 unbreakable vow. To your point was blessedly not overused but you reminded me the death the dark mark why couldn't everyone in all the trials after voldemort's first falling when they're trying to suspect like detect who was a a death eater who was really in it why couldn't they just look at their non-dominant forearm and find the dark mark there isn't it that it only shows up when voldemort's summoning them i i thought i thought it grew pretty much i thought it grew darker They've mentioned it fading. Yeah. Yeah. Like when, when he's gone, but mm. I don't think it completely disappears. Like I think yeah. if you're going to, if you're going to brand yourself with the dark mark, it should be pretty darn easy to round you up. Well, we, a lot of listeners have dark mark tattoos. Tell us, has it faded over time? Does it, <laughs> does it <laughs> come back? Tattoos do that. <laughs> oh, okay. The, the thing with the Death Eaters though, is that they were quick to start turning on each other. Right. Once Voldemort fell anyway. So I feel like they were able to round up most of them. Let's uh, keep going here. Yeah, Eric, bring us home with uh, Deathly Hallows. 
Okay, so a lot of responsibility here, bringing the only <laughs> Deathly Hallows plot hole. And, and Deathly Hallows is the book that I like the least and reread the most, or reread the least. So I'll just say here, isn't there a thing with Harry providing protection to all of the people in his in his cloud that when he dies, it provides additional protection akin to Lily's love protecting Harry? Isn't that a development in Deathly Hallows? Yes, Okay, why and how does that work? And I've always had a problem with Lily's protection over Harry being that she was a mother who stood in front of her infant son and said no. Because that is the natural instinct of what I hope is every human being would be to to stand in front of their children. And if that provides some kind of universe-changing magic protection barrier then you'd actually be seeing that a hell of a lot more, even in the scope of Harry Potter. That would be a known source of magic. It wouldn't hoodwink Voldemort at all. It wouldn't stun him or shock him because you'd have people dying for each other all the time. Voldemort killed hundreds of people during the First World War. So if Harry can recreate this love by dying for people that aren't even his kids, then it it blows the gasket open. I think maybe the difference here, because remember, Voldemort wasn't going to kill Lily if yeah. she had just stepped aside because he, he even said like there was no need for her to die. So it was not only the fact that he killed her, but it was the fact that she chose to die so that her son could live. And I always interpreted it as... Lily's blood flows through Harry's veins, so he's able to extend her protection over others. Because he chooses to die Mm -hmm. to save all of them. Yeah. So what's so special about Lily's blood that gives this protection? Whereas, you know, and again, I don't know it hasn't happened but uh, with other people in other times, but I'm saying because Voldemort didn't know about it, and I like to think of Voldemort as a guy who does his research on this sort of thing uh, so that he himself won't be suddenly destroyed unexpectedly at the height of his power one night. Um, you know, I just would assume he would know about it. I think it's implied that he doesn't, though, because he doesn't understand yeah. right. sacrifice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if there was a whole like if World War Two hadn't happened, that's one thing. But if you have like there's going to be there's got to be instances in the wizarding history when this is like a very clever trick to save hundreds of lives is <laughs> by one person. I'm telling you, like it gets cheapened when Harry gets to reuse it. I think that's just a, yeah, a knock it, against. It's like natural Felix Felicis is, is what you're saying. And, yeah. Yeah. But I think there's, there's some... for the purposes of this story, I think there's something that's very poetic about the fact that it is a mother's love that destroys Voldemort the first time yep. and it's a mother's love in Narcissa really that destroys Voldemort for good yeah yeah or or allows the plot to continue um so i i think here it's just a matter of accepting that that's how jk rowling wrote this in in that this magical protection comes through sacrifice like mm-hmm. harry literally open and, and and maybe that's part of it kind of to, to what laura said like harry is completely defenseless right like he accepts the killing curse being shot at him without any reaction whatsoever and so does lily and and maybe there's something in that that it does provide that level of protection then for those that you're trying to 
save. I know Harry's looking to save a lot more people than Lily was, but yeah, and, you know, sorry, sorry if I lift out details that were crucial because I haven't reread in a long time, but but the love protection, no, I, I, I think, think it's, it's good. I think it classifies as a plot hole. Like I, I think it because it's either inconsistent or we don't have enough information to really figure out if that can be expanded at a macro level by like anybody. So can just anybody die for someone else, you know, to achieve the same results? It's unclear. I also, I hope so. Just really quickly. I I think there's also the hope factor in, you know, these people all see Harry alive and well, having defeated Voldemort or defied him again, right. By coming back to life. And so I, I would think there's probably something to that as well, where they they become, you know, re-energized and and kind of catch another wave to be able to fight against the Death Eaters and, and finally destroy them. All right. Well, to wrap up, we're going to talk about some general and multi-book inconsistencies. I'm going to kick it off with The Trace. I know this is one uh. that has been brought up multiple times. It seems like this has been used pretty inconsistently throughout the series to either like get Harry in trouble or not get him in trouble. Um, so magic isn't able to be attributed to a specific person. And the ministry trusts magical families to enforce this in their homes. But in cases like Harry, who is the only magical person residing in the Dursley's home, he's assumed to be the person who performs the hover charm in Chamber of Secrets um, and then blows up Aunt Marge and Prisoner of Azkaban um, because he's presumed to be the only person residing mm-hmm. at Perfect Drive. But then in Order of the Phoenix, Tonks uses, uh, I think, the floating hover, another hover charm, I think, to yeah. move Harry's trunk. Um, and she uses another one, and we never hear anything about that. And then Dumbledore conjures a sitting chair in the Dursley's living room in Half-Blood Prince. So what's up with that? Why wasn't Harry expelled for this stuff? <laughs> right. Yeah. The trace, this is, I mean, the, the Dobby example is the big one to me because it's infuriating that, that Harry got in trouble for what Dobby did. Um, yeah. It's not a trace. They're tracing... When when we think of a trace in the Harry Potter books, we think of it actually being traced to the person, but it's not traced to the person. It They can detect magic, but not who's actually doing it. And I think that's a really big issue. Why have the trace if you can't actually trace who's conducting that magic? Agreed. Yeah, I never understood the trace, honestly. Mm-mm. Yeah, it's, it's pretty inconsistent. <laughs> okay, well... I also have a very big one. I have to give a shout out to Ashish on Cora for this one. Harry's glasses are a huge plot hole. He needs his glasses to see, right? If Voldemort or anyone else wanted to defeat Harry, just Accio his glasses off of him. He would have been useless. <laughs> this could apply to That's all seven one. Harry Potter books and the Cursed Child. Take off his glasses. He's done for. I mean, Hermione has to fix his glasses. He can't even fix his own glasses. Andrew mm-hmm. advocates for blinding people. To- <laughs> <laughs> got to do what you got to just- do to win. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I would. I am not below taking off Harry's glasses. <laughs> That's <laughs> such a dirty trick. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, Voldemort's I mean, no on, angel. Voldemort do- yeah, Voldemort doesn't have a nose, so Harry can't have eyes. So this is, you have to <laughs> right, an eye for an eye. Oh. <laughs> Okay, so um, I wanted to bring up Veritaserum one more time briefly, just to point out that 
Veritas Serum could be used to explain so much when there are so many mysteries in the Harry Potter books. And I find it very interesting that Veritas Serum is illegal when love potions are not. It's backwards because both take advantage of people against their will. So why are love potions sold in Diagon Alley and available for everybody, but Veritas Serum isn't? Yeah, love potions are like legal roofies. Yeah. And I we've discussed this on the show before, but if if the author wrote this series again today, I doubt love potions would be so commonly available and used in the Harry Potter series. Veritaserum could definitely be a helpful tool at a number of times in the series and you know, we talked earlier about Sirius and and just giving him a bit of Veritaserum would have proven his innocence. And so the fact that there seems to be unwritten rules around when it can and can't be used, right? Umbridge uses it yeah. in, in Order of the Phoenix. Um, they use it on uh, Barty Crouch Jr. Uh, at the end of Goblet of Fire. It it seems like it's only useful when it works for the purposes of the plot as opposed to, you know, if if it were something that could be used in our judicial system, people would probably use it. Like it, it's mm-hmm. much more effective than a lie detector test. And yeah, I, I know that people, really powerful wizards, it's stated, can circumvent the the impact of Veritaserum. But I feel like for the most part, it does its job. Yeah, and I mean, there should just be if we're worried about like the loss of agency, you know, people spilling all their secrets. There should simply be a limit to the types of questions you can ask people while they're under the influence. It should be totally legal to administer it in a law enforcement setting, but there need to be hard driven and hard enforced rules about what you can ask. Like, did you commit this crime? Did you know what you were doing? Who sent you? Who do you work for? You know, that kind of a thing. Agreed. Well, what about the taboo? Well, yeah. And, and so here's a uh, a development in Deathly Hallows. The whole way the Snatchers are able to find Harry Wright is because he uses the word Voldemort and they made Voldemort taboo. First of all, okay. Um, just okay. But why also wouldn't the Ministry have employed this in the use of like killing curses? Um you know, or, or any of the unforgivables. Why wouldn't the ministry use this feature if it is something that you can do with magic to actually save against, you know, law breaking and and people performing the curses? Yeah, I really point. did not like the taboo of on Voldemort's name in Deathly Hallows. I, I just it's something that really bothered me. Um, why? I know why they did it. It just seems like a really cheap plot device. Like, oh, well, the only way we're going to find Harry, Ron, and Hermione (laughs) is if we make Voldemort's name taboo because we know that there's only certain people that are brave enough to to say his name. And Mm. those are people that are not on the the Death Eater side. They're on the good side. Uh, Yeah, I just – It's it's like searching a hashtag. You know, it's like, yeah, it's just it's it was cheesy to me. Like, I I expected better from J.K. Rowling. Yeah, I think it would make more sense to just track the trio down another way. Come up with something like, else. Uh, ma- yeah, make Expelliarmus taboo. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. There, Seek out people go. wearing rounded glasses. <laughs> Seek out people with scars. <laughs> If there are any plot holes that are bugging you, please send them in via email or our social media channels. We would love to hear them after today's discussion. 
and we may touch on a couple more next week. It's time now for Quizich. Last week's question was, who invented the spell Muffliato? The correct answer was the Half-Blood Prince, also known as Severus Snape. Even though the Weasley twins uh, popularized it in Harry's time, it was in fact Snape. This was something Snape made, wrote in the margins of the Half-Blood Prince book. So correct answers were submitted by Jessica, Chelsea, Michelle, Subsera, Harry Potter Googles, Hallow Wolf, Twig Snap, Lance Dance, Robert, Potter, Grace, Chimera, Sarah, Count Ravioli, Caitlin, and uh potter chat podcast and you said what last week micah it sounds like a, a muffin or uh <laughs> uh what did i say oh it sounds like a sandwich a sandwich a i sandwich. think it sounds like a muffin Muffliato. but okay <laughs> well yeah i mean it's got all but one letter of muffin in it uh-huh what would be on a muffliato it sounds like a starbucks drink Honestly. <laughs> well, that too. <laughs> I, what am I thinking of? There's a sandwich that sounds very similar to this. It's 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 in the South, actually. I've had it in New Orleans. Yeah. Micah's very uh, cultured, so. Uh, the muffaletta uh, is both a type of round Sicilian sesame bread and a popular sandwich that originated among Italian immigrants in New Orleans, Louisiana. Olive salad, layers of mortadella, salami, Swiss cheese, ham, and provolone. Why did you get Great. really close to the mic to tell us all that? I don't know. <laughs> Because it's lunchtime and we're hungry. Yeah, because it's lunchtime. Thank you, you, Laura. Okay, what is this week's question? I want to make sure you heard everything on the sandwich. All right. This week's question. Who was Fudge's opponent in running for Minister for Magic? Okay. Who was Cornelius Fudge's opponent? Himself. Send your answer in to our Twitter account. We are MuggleCast on Twitter. We're also MuggleCast on Instagram and Facebook. And again, if you have any feedback about today's episode, email MuggleCast at gmail.com or send a voice memo that way that you record on your phone or call us 1-920-3-MUGGLE. That's 1-920-368-4453. We also have the contact form on MuggleCast.com. We also have our Patreon, patreon.com slash MuggleCast. If you love what we do, we would love your support on our Patreon. It is the reason our show is a weekly podcast. And to thank you, you will receive some magical benefits in return, including a personalized video thank you message from one of the four of us, our bonus MuggleCast installments, the ability to listen as we record live, and so much more, including the links line benefit. Many of the plot holes that we discussed today were submitted by our patrons. We made a links line post and we said, send in your favorite plot holes. If you are a patron, definitely check out that post because we got a ton of submissions. We obviously couldn't get to them all, but thank you to everybody who contributed to that post. We really appreciate it. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Don't forget to register to vote. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.